0: Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. I'm glad somebody's paying attention, though. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. After expounding the need for and the means of receiving justification in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 4, with chapter 4 being the illustration of the life of Abraham, one who was justified by faith, Paul now turns to the question in Romans chapter 5, Will this justification survive this life? Yes, I've been justified by faith, but now how long is it going to last? Paul answers this question in two different ways. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, he answers it negatively. Even though I experience tribulation, it is designed to strengthen me, not destroy me. It's designed to result in hope, not despair. I remain justified in spite of suffering. Now that seems like a moot point to me. Perhaps it does to you too, but it's not for everybody. And sometimes we have to be very, very careful, especially careful, when we run across theologies and truths and doctrine that we know well, because we tend to kind of, turn turn it off, and then somebody comes next week that holds to a different theology, and we can't remember where in the scriptures it is. Where was it that it said that you don't lose your justification just because you're suffering, or you haven't lost your justification because you're suffering? Well, that's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. But in the verses 6 through 11, the verses we're studying now, Paul answers the question, will this justification survive this life From the positive side, we were justified when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God. Now that we're family, He will keep us justified. So, now, after having already considered the first five verses and verses 6 through 8 last week, let's take a look at verses 9 through 11 as we close out this part. Of Paul's argument in the book of Romans. First, would you read with me? And in fact, I'm going to read from verse 6 on just so we can uh, take a look at this as a unit. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates, notice the present tense there, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what Paul is saying here is that this is not the type of love we would expect from each other, but this is God's own love is currently demonstrated in in an event that happened in the past. Now, our passage for tonight, verses 9-11. through Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life, or in His life. Verse 11, Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In verses 9 and 10, Paul gathers together the main points that he's made in verses 1 through 8 into a synthesis that reiterates the central point of the paragraph as a whole, which is the certainty of Christian hope. The Greek word for hope is elpis, and elpis doesn't mean hope like the way that we mean hope. When we say hope, we mean maybe it's going to happen, maybe it's not, but I sure, I desire it to happen. But the Greek word hope means a confident expectation. Paul says we can have a confident expectation that we will spend eternity with God because of the reconciliation that we now enjoy. That's the central point of verses 1 through 11. Now he sums it up. If God has already done the most difficult thing, and I do put difficult in quotes there, I'll explain it in a minute. If, Paul, if God has already done the most difficult thing, which was to, unre- to reconcile unworthy sinners... How much more can he be dependent upon to accomplish the easier thing? Save sinners from the wrath that is to come, those who have been, sinners who have been brought into a relationship with him. So, if, if he will do the more difficult for us when we were his enemies, it would stand to reason he'd do the easier thing now that we're his children. Now, in reality, In reality, there are no degrees of difficulty when it comes to omnipotence. By definition, there can't be. This is language of accommodation to help us not being omnipotent to understand the depth of what was done for us. If it helps, I might also say it this way, that God has already done the thing that we would not expect him to do, But now that he's done that, now he will surely do the thing that we would expect him to do. Let let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that you are building a house, a home. Not through a builder. You're actually building the home yourself. And you come by my home and ask me if I would help you to build your home. By the way, not a good idea if you want a well-crafted home, but this is just theory. Let's say you came by and asked me to help you build your home. So every weekend and every evening, every moment of spare time that I had for the next six months, I come over and I help you to build this home. One day, we're finished. And we decide we're going to go out and celebrate this home being finished. So as we're walking out the front door, you go out first. I'm following you, and you turn around and say, Hey, Bruce, would you mind locking the door for me on the way out? Does it make any sense at all for me to say, Lock the door? You've got to be kidding. What kind of lazy bum are you? I'm not going to lock the door. You get back and lock the door yourself. Wouldn't make any sense at all. Not if I've already come over for six months, spending all my spare time to help you, doing something that's far more time-consuming, takes a lot more out of me. It would be unreasonable for you to think that I wouldn't turn around and do something as simple as just turn the lock on the door when we're going to dinner. Now, that's what Paul's talking about here. We were God's enemies when he sent his son to die for us. In terms of Paul's logic, the more difficult thing. The the thing that we wouldn't normally expect him to do. Because remember, the sacrifice that was made for us wasn't some unknown angel in some remote part of the universe that didn't have any family that nobody's going to miss. Nobody ever knew nobody would miss if he was gone. The sacrifice for our sins was his only begotten son. His eternal son. One with whom he had had eternal fellowship. Never had a quarrel. Never did anything to disappoint him. And you might say if we were his friends, he might do that. But the verses previously said that would be the kind of action human beings would, a noble action human beings would take. But God did it for us even though we were his enemies. That's considered by Paul in the framework of his argument to be the more difficult thing. If he did that for us when we're his enemies, doesn't it stand with greater reason that he would do something like keep us saved now that we're his family? That is the way that Paul describes this here today. When we get to verse 11, it will wrap up the entire section, verses 1 through 11, by revisiting many of the key elements that are mentioned before. Things like boasting and rejoicing, the present experience of reconciliation with God, and the fact that this boasting and reconciliation are through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is an overview of what's going to happen in these three verses. Verse 9 again, much more than having been justified by his blood, We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We will not be disappointed in our hope or the confident expectation that we have. For in Christ, God loves us so deeply that the Savior died for us while we were sinners. If then we were justified by that death, or what this passage calls that blood of Christ, Much more shall we be saved from any future outpouring of wrath. Remember, that was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul's already established that we've been justified by faith. That's something that I hope you realize he established really well in the first four chapters. But now he adds that we've been justified, and the phrase he uses is by his blood by the blood of Christ as he did in chapter 3 verse 25 the term blood here signifies Christ's death as a sacrifice for sin over the past 50 years of church history there's been a lot of discussion about this idea of the blood of Christ and a lot of really I hate to say sloppy discussion about this issue but the theological dictionary in the New Testament Gerhard Kittel put it this way the blood of Christ as it is used in the New Testament is a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the saving work of Christ on the cross that's why uh, one very well known commentator put it this way that the term the blood signifies Christ's death as a sacrifice for sin Now, is this contradictory In the first portion of the book, Paul says that you're justified by faith. Now he says we have already been justified by the death that Christ died on the cross for us, if I may use Kittle's terminology. No, it's not contradictory at all. Paul has established that the way that we are properly joined in with this is by exercising faith, but the reason we can come in faith at all is because of the death that Jesus Christ died for us. To be sure, divine wrath is coming. That's a sure thing. Paul's already made that clear when he began his discussion of the need for justification. There is a reason why Christ had to die. Divine wrath is coming. Those who do not take advantage of the gift that was purchased at Calvary will suffer that wrath. But the one who has been justified by faith will not experience the wrath of God. Fourteen years ago, I decided to take about three or four days off and go back to Wyoming. That might surprise you, but that's what I decided to do. And I I rented a car, and I just decided to drive around to various places. And when I was driving from, from Casper up to Sheridan on Interstate 25 going north. It was a beautiful day, but sometimes in Wyoming in, in South Dakota, Nebraska, you can come up on one of these ridges or over a, t- a tall hill and when you get to the top of it and you look out over this prairie, it looks like you can see for 100 miles. Now, I don't know if you really can or not, but it sure looks like that. You've been in places like that. And it, when I... When I approached the top of this one particular hill and looked out over toward Buffalo, Wyoming there's no towns out there at all I saw this little speck of a town way in the distance but it was called Buffalo when I I looked out over there I saw the most incredible storm that was crossing across the prairie now it was miles and miles and miles ahead of me. Where I was, it was sunshiny, but off in the distance, you could see this incredible thunderstorm, and you could see the shades of orange and purple, and the lightning as it was just flashing down. And you could probably, if you looked close enough, you could see some of the dust that was being stirred up around it. And you saw, also thought, saw the rain. You could see it in the distance. It was just at, a, at almost at a horizontal angle coming down, and I was headed right for it. You could even see that it, it was being timed. I was watching it. This about the time I was going to hit that road. This storm was going to hit it. Actually, I wasn't really put off by that. I was looking forward to it a little bit because I thought it would be kind of neat to go through a, a storm like that because I was in a car. And I had this feeling that no matter how severe the storm was, I was going to come through it dry. And guess what happened? I drove right to the storm. I watched it the whole way, I knew it was coming. I never fretted over it a bit, and I went right through that storm and came through dry as a bone. The lightning popped all around me, and I never felt any electricity at all. I was safe. I was secure going through that storm because I was related to the car, to use theological terminology. In the same way, you are secured and safe from the coming wrath of God Because you have been secured in the loving arms of Jesus Christ. And the wrath of God is not going to touch you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a promise. Harold Honer, who was a professor of mine and Paul's, I assume, at Dallas Theological Seminary, he taught a class on Romans, one of the best classes I took up there, an incredible scholar. Harold Honer believes that this is one of the strongest passages in the Bible on the subject of eternal security. Sometimes people come and they ask me, do these kind of issues really matter? Why do you spend times on time on things like uh, election or predestination or eternal security or justification or reconciliation? That doesn't have anything to do with where I live. Oh, it's got everything to do with where you live. You see, there's, there's going to be a different mindset that you will employ if you're a person who believes that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of what God did for you, remember your faith doesn't save, God saves you on the basis of your faith. But because I have been justified, I can fail tomorrow. Now, I may not intend to fail tomorrow. I don't go out looking for an excuse to fail tomorrow, but I may fail tomorrow, and I will fail tomorrow. Maybe you won't. But I can know that no matter what happens tomorrow, if I was to sin... And then the Lord would call me home that afternoon. I know that that afternoon I'm going to be in heaven with him. I know it. That's one particular mindset. Several years back, some of you heard the story before, some of you haven't, but a lady visited the church when we were doing the First John series the first part of the First John series, and, and when, when I was finished, I went back, introduced myself to her, and like a, a dummy, asked her how she enjoyed the service. I learned not to do that, and she said, well, I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't agree with the words that you said. I said, well, this is, I wouldn't have enjoyed it if I wouldn't agree with it, but I'm glad that you did. Can you tell me what it was that you had a problem with, what you were troubled by? And she said, well, I don't believe in eternal security. Says, and then you taught that I don't believe that at all and I said well that's interesting let's talk about that and we got to, to speaking about it and finally it boiled down to this she believed if she sinned she lost her justification now Paul says in Romans 5 that you don't that that's why we can have confident expectation not, not the kind of hope that we use in English maybe we will maybe we won't the elpis, the Greek kind of hope the confident expectation that if we die tomorrow no matter if we sin tonight we are going to be in heaven with the Lord now, this is not an excuse to sin it's It's a motivation for living the kind of life that truly shows that we're appreciative for that. Finally, I asked her in, in as loving way as I could, well does that mean if you were to if you were to go to sleep tonight and you happened to sin right before you went to sleep and you died, you think you would go to hell?" and she said yes, and I said that's a horrible way to live, and God doesn't want you to live that way. You know, sometimes we think that as long as two people are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it really doesn't matter what their theology is. Those of you that are married know that that's a bunch of nonsense. It matters a lot what your theology is. Let's just say, take this one thing. Let's say you had one member of, a, of the, the marriage that believed in eternal security. The other one didn't. One is going to go through life with a certain degree of comfort. The other is going to go through life on pins and needles. No, you need to be compatible, hopefully compatible, with the truth. It is important. It does have to do with where you live. Reconciliation being a sign or a validation point of the fact that you can't lose your justification is incredibly important to the way that you live tomorrow. Now, wait. Before you, and some may may disagree, let me me address that right now before you get a chance to get all worked up. No, this is not a license for you to sin. You know, that charge is not new. Sometimes we think that charge was just brought up in the last 50 years. It was not. It was brought up 500 years ago when John Calvin first started teaching the doctrine of eternal security. And then the church at Rome challenged him about that. And you know what they challenged him on? It's exactly the same thing we just mentioned. You're giving the young people a license to sin by telling them that they can't lose their eternal salvation by sinning. And we won't hold to that. And this is one place where an extremely gifted exegete, a wonderful theologian, flinched. And he came up with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not the same thing as the doctrine of eternal security. Perseverance of the saints says, if a person truly perseveres in good works, it means they were saved the whole time. If they don't truly persevere in good works, it means they weren't saved to begin with. That's not eternal security. So this is an old discussion. No, it doesn't give you a license to sin. Have people abused the doctrine of eternal security? Of course they have. Have people gone out and sinned willfully and wantonly, knowing that they can't lose their salvation? Of course they have. Has God ever taken a belt out and beat the living tore out of them for doing it? You bet he has. So if you want to play footsie with God, if you want to rebel against him and see what happens, then go ahead and abuse the doctrine of eternal security and see what happens because he loves you he's not going to let you do that but that doesn't negate the truth of the matter that we cannot lose our justification once we have it because it's up to God not up to us in verse 10 for if while we were enemies and this is the first time he's used this word For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now we've mentioned this before, but now Paul builds up and he's let it overflow. We weren't neutral when Christ died for us. We weren't just nobodies. We were enemies. Now that doesn't mean we're worthless. We were created in the image of God. We have value. There's a reason why Christ went to die for us. It would be silly to say that we were nothings. We weren't nothings. We were actually antagonistic toward God. We were, if you'll allow me the terminology, we were at war with God because of our rebellion. You may say, well, no, I wasn't at war with God. Adam was at war with God because of his rebellion. I will allow you that point if you have lived a life of perfection. But seeing as how you haven't, neither have I. We all have been at times when we were in rebellion against God, and even if you may say, "Well, you know, in the, after the fall, then I didn't have the ability to do good." the only thing I could do was bad well now you're saved you do have a new nature you do have the ability to do good and you still rebel against God so do I so let's get off that high horse that, that we, we can blame Adam for the whole thing ultimately he's going to get a lot of the blame in the next few chapters that's why I want the next few verses that's why I wanted to establish that now we still are culpable even though Adam is the one that sinned for us originally so we were enemies at one time and uh, that's the point in time that God sent his son to die for us. It is the resurrected, living, and exalted son of God who carries to completion the work of salvation. If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and that's a true statement that could almost be translated since while we were enemies, but we'll leave the if in there. But it's it's a statement that's considered to be true for the sake of argument. If while we're enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and also I want you to see the death of his son here is paralleled to being justified by his blood in the previous passage, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. The thing that separates Christianity from every other faith is not the incarnation as such the thing that proves Christianity to be true is the resurrection of Jesus Christ because if Jesus Christ really was resurrected we can believe everything else that he said I want you to be honest with yourself though, listen to me carefully because I'm not afraid to say it if they ever find the body of Jesus Christ buried somewhere I quit and so should you because Christianity would not have what he said would not be valid and and his work would not have proven his words but the fact is they can look from now to the next 2,000 years and they will never find the body of Jesus Christ because that tomb is empty and that's what makes Christianity Christianity without the resurrection there is no Christianity But with the resurrection, what in the world are you doing believing anything else? This was a man who predicted that he would be crucified at the hands of the Romans and be resurrected three days later. That's not like some of the predictions that you read in the National Enquirer and some of the, the Star and things like that. You know, you'll have Jean Dixon. I don't know if she's around anymore, but used to every year you'd have Jean Dixon, and she'd have seven predictions for the new year. You know, there will be earthquakes somewhere. There's going to be hurricanes. Well, that's great, too. Elizabeth Taylor's going to get divorced, and not ours, but another Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> is going to get divorced and remarried. Well, that happens about once every four or five years anyway, so she had a pretty good shot at it. No, not that kind of prediction. I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be physically dead, I'm going to be put into a tomb, and three days later, that tomb's going to be empty, and I will have a new body. Over 500 people witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. And when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, we know that most of those people, many of those people are still alive. When he writes 1 Corinthians, and and their stories could have been checked out. Paul invites them to in effect go check it out go check it out with any of those people they will tell you they saw him Chuck Colson tells an interesting story of course Chuck Colson has an incredible prison ministry now but if if you're younger you might not remember that Chuck Colson was Richard Nixon's lead counsel when he was in the White House Chuck Colson was one of the few people that went to jail because of the Watergate scandal. And uh, he credits that with turning him toward Christ, so he doesn't look at it as a bad thing. He apparently, he accepted Christ in the driveway when they were fixed to come take him away to prison. So that was a good thing. But I remember Colson, um, in a speech that he gave in Dallas when I was up there, said, speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the reason that he's a Christian is because of the resurrection, he said, when it came to Watergate, There were about six of us that knew the whole story, that knew everything. And we all got together one day and had a meeting. And we said, if we'll keep our mouths shut, no one will ever find out about this. They can't. If the six of us will keep our mouths shut and stay with the same story. And then he said it wasn't 24 hours before one of them had bolted and gone to the papers to try to save his neck. Not 24 hours. Now, he said, now, listen... There were six of us that couldn't keep a conspiracy going for more than 24 hours. And you're trying, people that are opposed to Christianity, he'll say, you're trying to convince me that you had 11 men, plus 500 other witnesses, but particularly 11 men who not only kept their story together, but went to their deaths claiming to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. He said, that's very believable for me. He said, I know this, I, I never forget this statement. He said, I know men who will die for what they know or what they believe to be the truth. But I know of no one who will die for what they know to be a lie. Someone would have broken. It's the resurrected Jesus Christ that makes Christianity what it is. Without that, we could have no hope for the future. Or the hope that we would have would be just like the hope of everybody else. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. When you die, you're going to go to heaven. Well, I hope so. On what basis you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, I'm just trying to be good enough. If there is a God, I hope He accepts me into heaven. What a weak way to live. What a fragile way to live. For me, it would be very, very uncomfortable. So it's the resurrected, living, and exalted Son of God who carries to completion the work of salvation. When you read John, as far as John's concerned, we already have eternal life. When Paul writes, he understands that we have eternal life, but that there will be many trials and tribulations that we pass through. And Paul pictures Jesus Christ as getting us through that storm. Just like me driving through that Wyoming storm, coming through unscathed. That's the way Pauline theology works, oftentimes. The argument is this. If God justifies and reconciles to himself enemies, he will certainly see through to the end the salvation of his friends verse 11 and not only this but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation I read some, some um, exegetes who believe this verse is almost redundant. It was not really necessary. Paul's just repeating again things that he had said before. It's not redundant at all. Not only this, we exalt. Paul wants us to remember, as his closing thought in this first section of chapter 5, he wants us to remember who should be thanked for this. Do I thank myself because I was smart enough and wise enough to have faith? Well, I hope not. I hope we thank the one in whom we have faith. Today there's a lot of talk about faith. But when it all boils down to the, to the bottom line, it seems to be faith in faith. Not faith in the object. If it was faith in faith, if I just had to muster up a little bit more faith and my son would be healed. If I would have just a little bit more faith, perhaps my cancer would be healed. Then it's all on me. It's how much faith I have. But God's not looking for that kind of faith. He's looking for you to trust him. He's the strong one. We're weak. And it's not so much how much faith you have, it's the object that the faith is placed in. Not only this, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise Him, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The structure of this sentence reminds one of verse 3. Yeah, and not only this, but, as he says, almost the same thing there. In view of the context, the meaning is probably something like this. Not only shall we be saved, that's verse 10, but now we exult, we praise, we rejoice, If you will, we boast. Rejoicing in God because of blessings, both present and future, reminds one of the words of Peter, "...in this you greatly rejoice, with joy inexpressible and full of glory." you want to take a test tonight I know you're tired you've been working all day this is the last thing you're going to do but, but besides hopefully get home safely do you thank God regularly for the fact that you've been reconciled that you've been justified or is it so far off your radar you had not even thought about it in a long time you, know, you, you can think about, well, I need help with my mother's cancer and my my son's grades at school and a various laundry list of things, but have you forgotten to thank him and exult and rejoice in the blessing that you already have? If things aren't going the way you really want them to go, perhaps you might consider that. That's what Paul does. In this you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. Now, not all glorifying or boasting can be recommended. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 23, Paul indicates that the Jews were boasting or bragging about the fact that they, in distinction from all other peoples, possessed God's holy law. That's something to be thankful for in a sense of gratitude, but not to, not to boast in it. In the church at Corinth, there were people who bragged about being Christian leaders and or bragged about other Christian leaders. By the way, let me I'm going to pause right there and I got to, I just cannot stop without saying one thing. There's way too much of that going on. There are way too many Christian leaders that have become celebrities. That has got to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And what we've done is we've set up two categories of people. People who are in the ministry, and then people who are in everything else. And sometimes people who are doing everything else look at people in the ministry and say, Well, that's the only way I'm ever going to really be blessed in heaven. Oh, wow, he's a pastor. He must be going to be in in for great blessings in heaven. Or did you see how she leads that youth group? Boy, she's going to be in for great blessings in heaven. Maybe yes, and maybe no. If that's what they're called to, and they do their job as unto the Lord, yes, they will be blessed. But, so will the people who have been called into other areas of life, other vocations in life. Some people are called to raise children in the home. And they should not pine and long for something else. If that's what God has called them to do, they should do that as unto the Lord, and raise those children in the best way they can raise them. And guess what? Watch, I hope you don't miss this. They will be blessed in eternity every bit as much I'm talking about with rewards special reward. every bit as much as the pastor who pastors well I know that there are special set apart rewards for the pastor but there are also rewards for the person who is a great mother or a great father or a great accountant or a great senator or a great judge or a great teacher just keep going down the list whatever you do do it as unto the Lord glorify God where you are if God's called you to be uh, an accountant, if God's called you to be an elementary education teacher or a nurse or what or whatever he's called you to be, don't long to be something else. Do what you're doing as unto the Lord. He will bless that and he'll honor that. There are not two categories of persons. There are people that may be gifted in one area and they're expected to fulfill their potential, their spiritual potential under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that area but maybe you haven't been maybe you've been gifted in some other area you're expected to do that job as unto the Lord and you will be blessed as well, well more about that as we move on but the, the Corinthians were looking at certain people and they would have them on such a pedestal and they were missing the point entirely they were also bragging about special gifts that they had and and which ones were the greater gifts then in his letter to the Galatians Paul refers to men who bragged about the number of Gentiles they had converted or caused to be circumcised in Galatians chapter 6:13. In contrast to that, this is the one, says Paul, through whom we have already now received our reconciliation. That's who ought to be on the pedestal. Nobody else. Nobody else. It troubles me when people have top 10 lists. This is the greatest pastor since the the Apostle Peter. Well, who would be your number two? What's your number three? Who's number four on your list? Don't be silly. We don't know who the greatest pastor is, and it doesn't matter. It's offensive to the holiness of God for us to have lists. That's also I why I don't like top ten lists on a Christian radio stations. but we'll get right past that and move back to what we're talking about here. Jesus Christ is the only one that should be placed on a pedestal. The rest of us are all looking up to him. We can respect our, our leaders in church, churches, and you should. You should obey your leaders in churches. You should do that. But don't place them on a pedestal and think there's a separate category of humanity. They're going to be blessed in eternity. Poor me, I'm not going to be. Yes, you are if you do your job as unto the Lord. Every day. Day in and day out. We'll talk about that more at a later time. For those who in faith and humility rejoice or exult when they consider the blessings they already have received, there are even more glorious blessings in store in the future. No wonder that in connection with blessings received through Jesus Christ, Paul is able to say, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now in the five minutes we have left, I want to summarize verses 5-11 through 11 and the doctrine of reconciliation. Listen carefully. Romans chapter 5 verses 1-11 through 11 is considered to be one of the most important passages in the scripture with reference to the doctrine of reconciliation. Reconciliation, again, being the cessation of hostilities between God and man. And remember, we are always reconciled to God. He is never reconciled to us. We're the ones that have to move toward Him. He doesn't have to move toward us. He didn't go anywhere. The concept is introduced in verse 1 by the Greek term irene, which means peace, although the term reconciliation is not actually introduced until verse 10. It presents these, I mean these 11 verses, present the fourfold need of man for reconciliation. Presenting it in in what I believe is a climactic order. First, man's inability or lack of strength. Paul says, while you were weak in verse 6. Then he says, man's lack of merit. He uses the term ungodly later in verse 6. The third thing, man's lack of righteousness or his guilt before God is is the term sinners in verse 8. And, and finally, the fourth thing, man's lack of peace with God, being at enmity with Him, and that's the enemy. We call the enemies of God in verse ten. So there's a progression between just weak, and then then finally he ends up with we're the enemies of God before salvation. From this fourfold indictment, it's clear that man is without strength to accomplish his own reconciliation. He's without merit or a righteousness that will do the job. He has, in fact, sinned against God and stands condemned for this disobedience. Finally, his moral depravity has placed an insurmountable wall between him and God, leaving him completely estranged from God's love and God's mercy. Not a very good position to be in. Certain theological conclusions are presented forcibly in this passage. First, it may be observed that the death of Christ is mentioned in some way in each verse of the passage between verses 6 through 10. You think Paul's trying to make a point as to what the basis of our justification and reconciliation is? I think he is. The emphasis is clearly here on the means of reconciliation. Second, reconciliation is presented as something that man desperately needs, which he has no right to expect, but and apart from which he has been utterly estranged from God. Third, reconciliation is shown to be a work of God rather than a work of man for God. We don't help God with this. It is a work of God for us. This is stated in verse 10, again, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life the verb forms are passive here indicating that God is the one performing the action and man is the recipient the conclusion is emphasized in verse 11 where it's added and not only this or not only so but we also rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation fourth reconciliation is presented in this passage as a ground for assurance the reason being and don't miss this If Christ died for sinners who were at the time estranged from God, unable to reconcile themselves, and without any merit, if God by his mercy has reconciled sinners to himself, how much more will he be merciful to those that he's now reconciled? In other words, if God can save a sinner, then the one who is already reconciled by the death of Christ shall certainly escape the wrath of God. The child of God is saved by or in His life. The life of Christ is mentioned here, or the life of the Christ that is mentioned here is the life which was given on Calvary, which in resurrection continued to provide the basis for the believer's intercession and advocacy. One of my favorite systematic theologians is now with the Lord. His name, Doctor John Walvern. I'd like to close out this section on Romans one or in Romans five, one through eleven, with this statement that he made. He said, Reconciliation necessarily depends upon other aspects of the work of God in salvation, namely, the redemption provided in respect to sin, and the propitiation provided in respect to the righteous demands of God toward the sinner. These having been accomplished, however, God is now free to reconcile a sinner to himself by declaring him to be in Christ and justified by faith. Technically, we are not saved because God has been propitiated, which is true of all men, nor because mankind as a whole has been provisionally reconciled. The act of salvation is a personal one by which the individual, on the basis of all these works of God, is placed in Christ, declared righteous, and therefore reconciled now to a holy God, taken as a whole, The Romans passage brings out in bold relief how tremendous is the scope of divine reconciliation and how intrinsic is the work of Christ on our behalf as providing a basis by which the reconciliation can be effected. Now if we had said that eight, ten weeks ago when we first started this passage, perhaps that would have meant very little to you. But now having studied verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. I hope that was rich and I hope it ministers to you. In verses 1 through 11, we have seen that the justification we enjoy in Christ is indeed secure. It will survive this life and we will enjoy it forever.